Let us again give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Our next lesson comes from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. I'll be reading from chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being through the power of his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all that we could ask or imagine, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this scripture lesson that we just heard, Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital of the area of Asia Minor, and the Christian church was growing there. This was not a church that Paul had established originally. I think uh, it was Apollos that established this church, but Paul was very familiar with it and with the members of that congregation there and Christians in the region. As a matter of fact, many uh, Bible scholars believe that this was a circular letter that was shared with other churches than just the one in the capital at Ephesus. But at any rate, he is writing to these people whom he knew because he had worked himself in Ephesus for about four years, from the year 54 to the year 57. So he knew them well, but he was separated from them. He was isolated, if you will. He was sheltering in place, we might say, but out of necessity, because at this time in his life, he is in prison in Rome And he is writing a letter to build up uh, these people that he knew and loved who were carrying on the witness and the mission of Jesus Christ in their own time. Uh, He's practicing social distancing, not practicing it by choice, but out of necessity, because he was in a lockdown, literally in a lockdown situation. These words of Paul written to the Ephesians, um, I think, have particular relevance for our lives for two reasons. One, we are so isolated from one another during these days. It's important that we pray for and encourage and remember one another and uplift and encourage one another to remain faithful and obedient as best we can, given the circumstances of our life and times. But a second reason these words are so important, this, this prayer, is because it reminds us of this time that we have entered this morning, Holy Week, a time when we focus on the love of God seen in the sacrificial death of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll be looking at the love of God in our worship services this week, and we're doing so this morning as well. Paul says, I wish you could understand the height and depth of the love of God, the breadth and the width of the love of God, even though he acknowledges It's beyond human comprehension. In this prayer for his fellow believers, the substance of it is this. He prays that they may be strengthened in their inner being by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God. He prays that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith 
as they are rooted and grounded in love. He prays that each of them may be filled with the, with the fullness of God, as we pray for all of you who are listening today. And as I wish to emphasize this morning, he prays that each of them might understand to the extent that they can the love of God, the love of Christ revealed in this special week we call holy, knowing the breadth and length and height and depth, even though, yes, this love surpasses human comprehension. But you know, if we could ever get this message out to the world, if we could ever enable the struggling masses of humanity and ourselves and our neighbors to comprehend the, comprehend the extent to which God has loved them in Jesus Christ, I personally believe that our world would turn topsy-turvy if we could ever begin to grasp how greatly we are loved, especially in the gift and death and resurrection of our Savior. And yet part of the problem is how do we go about doing that? How can we communicate to other people just how precious they are to God as well as to us? We could, I guess, begin by just trying to love people ourselves in the same way that God has loved us in a compassionate and sacrificial and unmerited way. But the truth of the matter is we know that all of us are fallible people. Uh, we are almost incapable of loving to the extent that we have been loved. To the contrary, often our love is very calculated, uh, maybe even self-serving on occasion. We find it easier to love some people than to love other people, perhaps. There's nothing very extravagant in the way we love, but there's something terribly extravagant in the way God has loved us. The word extravagant uh, means something reckless, something possibly even wasteful or excessive, overindulgent, we might say, going beyond what is expected or what is recommended, ill-advised, inappropriate. Could we say that of the love of God for his children and for you and me? So if we have a problem comprehending this love ourselves as the people of God, how can we ever enable other people to comprehend it? We can not only try to live it out, but we can probably try to tell people about the love of God as we're doing this morning in pulpits all across this land and this world. People are being reminded how much they love God, but our language too, like our lives, is insufficient. The hymn writer said, what language shall I borrow to thank you, dearest friend, for this thy dying sor sorrow, thy pity without end. So this morning I'm going to ask that we just try for a brief while to imagine that we are God and how we would respond to the people that we created, the people whom we redeemed from captivity in Egypt, uh, the people for whom our son was sent to win them back. Let us suppose that we are God and let us reflect on the extravagant actions of God toward his people throughout the ages, throughout the story of Scripture. So imagine, if you will, I'm not asking you to try to put yourself necessarily in God's position. I think we do that at our own uh, inappropriately quite often. But just imagine if you were one who had created this beautiful world, an abundant world filled with everything humanity could possibly need or want, beautiful, majestic, orderly, 
this well-designed, a world designed to be dependent on one another, on the creation itself. And you had created this environment, this world, and you had peopled it with these little creatures in addition to the animals and plants and uh, fish of the sea and the birds of the air, but you had peopled it with people whom you wanted to be related to, to whom you wish to be related. And uh, you placed within their hearts a longing to know and to serve you. And you provided them with guidelines as to how to go about doing this, laws to direct their daily life, how they could live in a way that would honor God and even benefit themselves. And you had also given to them, initially, the power to make decisions the power to choose how you're going to live and how you're going to love and how you're going to react to different situations in life. So you had created this world and you had created all of these little creatures with whom you long to have uh, a loving relationship. But before very long, you find these little creatures are going at each other's throats. They're scrambling over one another to take care of themselves first and last. They're hoarding the precious resources that are available or else selfishly using them for their own needs. And not only that, but they're jealous of one another. They resent what people, some people have and others don't have. They're stubborn. They're hard-headed. They resent being told how they're to live. Thank you, they can live as they choose to live. And many of them, no, all of them chose to do that in time. So they had forgotten that they were, in fact, creatures they had a creator. They had a redeemer. What would you have done at that point? Would you have given up? Would you have said, well, that's enough of this. I'm going to go to plan B. This, this isn't working. If you had been God, would you continue to love them? Alas, God did. God loved them, and so he did something even more. He whispered into the hearts of a few of the more sensitive little creatures and he reminded them that he was their creator and that they were charged to live a certain way. And these little more sensitive creatures that some folks referred to as prophets told the people what God had instructed them to say, to remind them of their purpose, to remind them of God's love, to remind them of what God had already done on their behalf and to call them back to himself. But most, if not all, of those who listened rejected these prophets. They grew mean and ugly in their disappointment. They stoned many of them to death. Now, what would you have done at this point had you been God? I think for me, if I were in God's place, I would have given up at this point. I would have said, well, enough is enough, or on occasion, enough is too much. This isn't working. But incredibly, God loved them so much that God decided to do more. And so God says to himself, I will go down and live among them through my own son. I will be one with them. I, I will share their struggles, their pains, their sorrows. I will walk with them on the road of life. I will be among them. I will even undergo their death. Surely, then these little creatures will see and accept my love, my desire to be with them and to help them. And at long last, they will begin to start living as I have charged them to live.
And they will start living in peace and in joy and in justice and in harmony with their neighbor and in a right relationship with me as well. And that is exactly what God did. God came among us. Or as Paul puts it in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, God empties himself of his, the prerogatives for his divinity. He emptied himself and took on the form of a slave and being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself and became obedient, obedient unto death, even death on a cross. So God showed his love in this way. And unfortunately, many of them didn't respond. Some did, some listened for a while. But even some that were listening at first wanted more in this little godlike creature that had come to live among them. They wanted him to be a military leader. They wanted him to be the kind of king who would throw out the infidels, the kind of king who would destroy his enemies, the kind of king who would rid their holy land of these Roman invaders and occupiers. And so they too, in time, grew ugly and mean in their disappointment. And they murdered this little godlike creature. They hung him on a cross. What would you have done had you been God at this point? I think most of us would have given up. These little creatures perhaps aren't even worth saving. And yet God loved them still. So he says, I'm going to do more. I'm going to say, show that my love and my power is greater than the cruelty and the hatred of humanity. And I'm going to raise this child from death. And they will know about my power and my love and my desire to be with them and to have a right relationship with them. So God raised Jesus Christ from the tomb. He did more, more than was expected. He took extravagant actions of love. But I wonder, frankly, if I would have done so had I been God. Would you? Extravagant indeed is the love of God until you stop and think, well, we are those little creatures. And if it were not for the extravagant love of God, for we human beings who don't merit his love, then we would be without hope in this world ourselves. So how can you possibly explain this kind of extravagant love, the height and depth and breadth and width of this kind of love, to people who haven't experienced it? Throughout sacred history, people have debated, why the cross? Why did Jesus have to die for the redemption of humanity? Why is the shedding of innocent blood so important? Could God not have redeemed humanity in a different way? How are we to interpret the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross? Or do we even call it sacrificial? This is, deals with the theological term of atonement. How are we brought into a relationship with God through the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection? And there have been all different kinds of ways to explain the atonement. There are eight or nine very popular theories. You can look them up and read about them yourselves. Uh, does, is this sacrificial? Does God take your place on the cross? Is that a substitutionary atonement? Is it a moral influence? God is simply trying to show us 
how much he loves us so that we will begin to respond. I have to say that apart from the cross, apart from the actions of this Holy Week that we are entering through the portals of Palm Sunday, without the cross, without the death of Jesus for the sake of the world, then I think we will have a very difficult time at best to understand the depth, depth and width and height and length of this extravagant love of God. I think the death of Jesus on the cross for each of us brings home in a way no, another, nothing else can just how much God loves us individually, you and me. I'll have to say from my own life experience when I was growing up in Mississippi, I was a teenager, I'd gone to a summer camp and we came to the end of the week and it was a Friday evening as I remember and the minister who was leading our devotions or our service that night was a minister by the name of Tom R. Tom R. Sr. Tom's son, Tom R. Jr. is currently the minister of the I think the largest Presbyterian church in America right now, the Prairie Village Church. But his dad, a native of North Carolina, by the way, one who knew and sang with uh, Andy Griffith when they were boys, came to Mississippi and did a lot of youth work and did a lot of ministry of music. He directed the Synod's Youth Choir and uh, was a wonderful pastor. I've lost touch with Tom R. Sr., so I don't even know if Tom's still living. If he is, he'd be up in his 90s, I'm sure by now. But Tom was the speaker that Friday evening. And I had nothing in mind as I was going uh, to the service other than to try to get a spot near Rachel Davis, who was a pretty little girl from uh, Meridian, Mississippi. Uh, but at any rate, we sat on the benches and Tom started uh, speaking. And, and being a musician and a chorister himself, he quoted that night words that I will never forget, I'm sure. He quoted words from John Stanier's Easter cantata, uh, The Crucifixion. There is a portion of that cantata, a bass oratorio, I think, uh, called um, Is It Nothing to You? And so I'm going to share these words with you because they had such a profound impact on me because it brought home in a personal way the death of Jesus for me. And I think, really believe that it was that evening after that service that I started contemplating the ministry. But this is the setting for the, the oratorio. Jesus is on the cross and he's seeing all the people that walk by on, uh, beneath him. And so he uses these words, is it nothing to you all ye that pass by that come from the book of Lamentations. And so he, he speaks to the crowd that is looking up at him. Is it nothing to you all ye that pass by? Behold me and see if there's any sorrow like unto my sorrow, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. From the throne of his cross, the king of grief cries out to a world of unbelief. O men and women afar and nigh, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? I laid my eternal power aside. I came from the home of the glorified, a babe in a lowly cave to lie. Is that nothing to you? All ye that pass by. I wept for the sorrows and pains of men. I helped them and healed them and loved them. But then they shouted against me, Crucify! 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 Is that nothing to you? 
all ye that pass by. O men and women, your deeds of shame, your sins without reason or number or name, I bear them all on this cross on high. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Is it nothing to you that I bow my head, that my blood is shed? O perishing soul, to you I cry. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? O come unto me, by these woes, by this dreadful scourge and crown of thorns, by these I implore you to hear my cry. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? O come unto me. This awful price, redemption's tremendous sacrifice, is paid for you, is paid for you. So why will you die? Come unto me. Powerful words. They grabbed me as perhaps no other words had before or since. I was already a believer at that point, but uh, I guess that evening the faith became much more personal and real and also the desire to respond in some way. There's a novel of another century written by George Meredith. Some of you may be familiar with it. It was entitled Beauchamp's Career. It's written about this young Neville Beauchamp. He was a young, aristocratic, good-looking uh, man in England in the early 1800s uh, in the book. He was an idealist. He fought for justice for all people. Uh, he was just what anyone might could have imagined a faithful, effective servant to be. And one day, according to the story, he is walking beside the river, and he realizes a young child off the streets has fallen into the river and is about to drown. So Beauchamp, Neville Beauchamp, dashes into the river to save the child but as he does so, he drowns in the process. The novelist describes the climactic scene of that book in these words that I will share with you now. The mother of the rescued boy sobbed and dragged the urchin to Lord Romfrey's feet on the riverbank. All the lights were turned on the head of the abashed little creature. This is what we have in exchange for Beauchamp? It was not uttered, but it was visible in the blank stare at one another of the two men who loved Beauchamp after they had examined the insignificant bit of mudbank life remaining in the world in Beauchamp's place. A Beauchamp for an urchin, a somebody for a nobody. What wasteful extravagance Beauchamp's friends thought. What a reckless and ridiculous thing Beauchamp did to jump into that river to save this child. But if the exchange of a Beauchamp for a nameless little boy off the streets is so extravagant, then how would we explain the death of Jesus Christ for the likes of you and me? How excessive and extravagant is that? How unfathomable? How in a sense do you make any justice or about that arrangement? Do you suppose that perhaps, just perhaps, God believed that this unmitigated extravagant love on his part 
might just get through to us. Might just get through our thick uh, skulls or cause a stirring in these cold hearts of ours. And we would catch a glimpse, perhaps, of the breadth and height and depth and length of God's love for us as individuals. And it would be seen, perhaps, that the death of Jesus Christ was not in vain. It was not a wasteless extravagance. Because little creatures all over the world began worshiping and and serving him and serving one another. And the one who came and died would see that his love made a difference and it accomplished its purpose. It won over many of those self-centered and sinful little creatures that God had loved since the moment of their creation. After I prepared this message, I found a quote by Oscar Wilde. I didn't know where to put it in the sermon, but I think it's worth considering. He wrote, without extravagance, there is no love. Think about that. Without extravagance, there is no love. And then, without love, there's no understanding. Only one who loves extravagantly can comprehend that kind of love for oneself. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.